Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This week, Bishop and Kyle finish up their conversation about the remarkable lives of African Americans who are candidates for canonization as we celebrate Black Catholic History Month. Learn more about Servant of God Julia Greeley, Venerable Henriette DeLille, and Venerable Pierre Toussaint. Then Bishop shares highlights from his homily at the recent Mass for Healthcare Workers. The show wraps up with him answering listener-submitted questions. If you have a question for a future episode, submit it at RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. Thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. You're welcome, it. Kyle. Good to see you. Good to see you. Also, we want to thank our sponsor for this week's episode, Bert and Ann Brunner have made a donation and sponsored the show. So we appreciate them and, and all of those that support Redeemer Radio, support the diocese, making this possible. We appreciate you. Last time on the show, we were talking about some African-Americans whose cause for canonization is open, meaning that uh, they are on a path to potentially being recognized and canonized as saints. Uh, one of the things I always try to remind my kids whenever we talk about this is that the church doesn't turn them into saints at the canonization, only recognizes that they are saints. They are saints because of the life that they lived, not because the church decides that they are a saint. It's not our place for that, but we, we can recognize due to the circumstances that somebody is for sure in heaven. Yeah, exactly. You know, to have these six remarkable African-American Catholics that are, you know, in the early stages of the the process for beatification and canonization is kind of exciting. I mean, I look forward to the day and hopefully it won't be too long. I think in a couple cases we're waiting for a miracle. Mm -hmm. I think they may even be studying some. I think probably the one most well-known in our diocese is, is Father Augustus Tolton, who we talked about in the last episode. Uh, but I'm glad that you that we're making time to to look at the three that I, I haven't talked about. Uh -huh. um, and the first is uh, a woman that I didn't really know too much about. I'd heard her name, but then when I knew we were going to be talking about her here on Redeemer Radio, I decided to, to read a, about her servant of God, Julia Greeley. And she's a, a laywoman. And uh, I was just very moved by her story. She was born a slave in Hannibal, Missouri. They don't even know what year she was born because hmm. they didn't keep records like that for slaves. So wow. the estimate is she was born somewhere between 1833 and 1848. Hmm. So that's 15 years. <laughs> that's, uh, I mean, or, yeah, 15 years. So can you imagine not knowing your age that yeah. you were, you grow up and you never know how old you are? I mean, you know, obviously as a slave, she saw her mother getting beaten by the, the slave master and she also got injured in her eye at that same time. The whip, she was just a little girl, mm. uh, hit her eye. And I think it might have even destroyed it. I'm not sure. They were working for a uh, the territorial governor of Colorado. His name was William Gilpin. And that brought her to Denver. And that was in the year 1878. And it's interesting, after she... Uh, was freed and she was uh, able to leave the that work she found odd jobs around the city she became a catholic in 1880 at sacred heart parish in denver and she was just a beautiful 
parishioner. She would go to mass every day. She was very active. She was a secular Franciscan. The priests in the parish were Jesuits. They were they saw how how wonderful this woman was. She promoted devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. She had a great devotion. Uh, she was poor, but she spent her time collecting food, clothing, and other things for the poor. So she would um, often go out at night to help the people that she was assisting. She was only earning 10 to $12 a month cleaning and cooking, but she would use it for those who were poor. She didn't keep it for herself. Hmm. It was interesting that she died on the feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, which I think is providential since she had so much devotion to the Sacred Heart. They think she was around 80 years old, but they don't know because of her not knowing her age. Right. A lot of people after she died came to pay their respects. She was really well known and well loved. The Archdiocese of Denver opened her cause just four years ago and her body was exhumed and her remains are now in the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception in Denver, the Basilica mm -hmm. there. And she's the only person buried in the cathedral in Denver. Uh, huh. Interesting, there are no bishops uh, buried there. She is. So anyhow, a lot of people have devotion to her, you know, especially women. And she uh, just was a person who, who exhibited God's love, Christ's love, and took care of the poor. And she has, if you look at a, I think there's only one actual picture of her, and she's wearing this floppy hat, and evidently that's what kind of was a trademark for her, this hat that she had. <laughs> and she would drag a red wagon filled with food and other things to distribute to the poor, and she would beg on behalf of the poor. <laughs> uh, as I said, she did it at night, so as they wouldn't be embarrassed that People would see that she was bringing stuff to the portion and went to embarrass them. Someone said she was like a, a modern-day St. Nicholas, which I right. thought was kind of neat. Yeah. Um, so anyhow, I hope that uh, someday uh, Julia Greeley will be canonized or first beatified, and we can pray for her beatification if anyone is looking for someone's special intercession, if they are terminally ill or something, I would recommend Julia Greeley or one of these other uh, candidates for sainthood. Sure. And so right now she's servant of God, so she would also need to be named Venerable. Correct. First. Because this was pretty recently introduced just four okay. years ago. All right. The next uh, person I think that you wanted to talk about was Venerable Henriette DeLille. Mm -hmm. And I remember once when I was in New Orleans for some kind of meeting or conference, learning about Henriette. It's, she's very well known and by the people in the Archdiocese of New Orleans. There's a lot of devotion to her. And um, she was a woman of, of color, a free woman of color, so mm -hmm. she wasn't a, a slave, but she was of mixed um, ancestry. She had Creole, which would be where the African blood would be, but also she had French blood as well. So Henriette de Lille uh, lived also in the 1800s, and she was, well, it's kind of hard to describe what they did. There were a lot of times where these mixed 
women of color that were part French or part white and part Creole, part black, where they would be like in a, a common law kind of relationship with a white man, especially the French. And even sometimes they were their concubines. Hmm. So they may have been, have been, these men may have been married, but had one of these women of color as a concubine. That's kind of what, uh, when you look at uh, Henriette DeLille's background, she was a free woman of color, and her parents were in this kind of common law marriage situation. And she had a brother, and she had other brothers and sisters as well. So when you look at her lineage, there's the Spanish, there's some French, there's Creole of color. And her family, and she lived uh, not far from the St. Louis Cathedral in the French Quarter. She was raised to find a white, wealthy male partner in this system, this kind of common law marriage system. And her mother taught her French literature, music, dancing, nursing, all these things. But being a young mixed race woman, you know, there was a certain, you know, status that they had in society that was lower class. Um, she was raised Catholic. She had a strong religious faith. Um, she was against this whole system of the common law marriages that these French or European American men had with free women of color, that they would have these women of color, but then they would marry a white woman. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the woman of color would remain as kind of a, a mistress. Uh, so anyhow, this was a terrible part of society. Sometimes these women were enslaved. Other times they were free, like, like Henriette was, was free. She came to believe, though, that this was you know, against the teachings of the church on marriage. Later, when they started looking at her cause for canonization, and I'll give you a little bit about why they're thinking why she's a candidate for, for sainthood, is, and this was just, I think, a few years ago, they discovered in funeral records that she gave birth to two sons. In other words, this was outside of marriage. Mm -hmm. She, it's this whole system that we're talking about. But it w she would have been a teenager at the time. So this was out of wedlock. She got confirmed in 1834. This was before her confirmation. So it seems that um, she had something of a conversion after that. Mm -hmm. But why is she a candidate for, for sainthood? Again, she was a woman of faith. Uh, she did inherit her mother's property. Uh, her mother had a nervous breakdown. And she took control of her mother's assets, according to the courts. She took care of her mother and then sold the rest of the property and used that to found a small congregation of, of women, kind of the beginning of a religious order. Mm -hmm. And they were called the Sisters of the Presentation. And these were these young Creole women. There was also a young French woman. And they would go out and care for the sick. They would help the poor. They would instruct enslaved children, enslaved adults, also those who were uh, free and, and also Creole or black. They took into their home elderly women. They opened the first Catholic home for the elderly in the United States. Hmm. 
Her brother, by the way, was very against what she was doing. They were very light-complected. Certainly her brother could pass as a white man, but really they had this uh, Creole blood, so they had this partial African ancestry. They sought recognition as a religious order. She was kind of the mother superior, and they got uh, recognition from Rome, and they changed their name to the Sisters of the Holy Family. Hmm. So she was the foundress of a religious order, Sisters of the Holy Family, and continued that life of service to the poor of New Orleans. She died at the age of 49. It was during the American Civil War. The sisters that she founded and she herself you know, would often take care of the sick and dying, including the yellow fever epidemics that struck New Orleans. She had a reputation of holiness. As a matter of fact, we go to New Orleans, there's a street named after her. The cause for her canonization began in 1988, and she was the first U.S.-born African-American whose cause for canonization was officially opened. Oh, really? Yeah, this was before the other ones that uh -huh. we talked about. She is venerable, so Pope Benedict actually approved her heroic virtues and named her venerable 10 years ago in 2010. So I think now it's just waiting for a miracle. Mm -hmm. There have been various reported miracles attributed to her, but they, you know, there has to be no natural explanation. So sometimes it's it's hard to uh, to have one that's absolutely documented. So that's Venerable Henriette Delille, foundress of the Sisters of the Holy Family. There is one quote of hers that uh, you'll see often if you read about her. It's something that she wrote uh, in French in her prayer book, and this is like around the time that she had this conversion when she was a young, young adult. And the qu quote, I won't say it in French because I don't know French. It's, I believe in God, I hope in God, I love, I want to live and die for God. Hmm. And that really kind of sums up who she was and her founding of the Sisters of the Holy Family. When she died, by the way, in her obituary, it said, Miss Henriette DeLille had for long years consecrated herself totally to God without reservation to the instruction of the ignorant and principally to the slave. So we pray also for maybe she will be the first beatified African-American, yeah. although she's, as I said, just part African-American, part Creole. Mm -hmm. So you talked about the miracles and how it can sometimes be a long process of approving miracles, even if they've been you know, claimed. About how long does that take usually for that investigation? I mean, it probably varies, but is it years? Yeah, I mean, it depends, you know, how long it takes to collect the medical evidence. Mm -hmm. The doctors have to be, the medical people are all interviewed. There has mm -hmm. to be no natural explanation. And there's a medical commission at the Vatican in the Congregation for the Causes of Saints with doctors, et cetera. So they have to then see what all the testimony is from the medical people who, you know, investigated the, the uh, report. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it takes a while to get that done. Sometimes there's some uncertainty. There might be a way to explain that's natural. And if that's the case, 
it won't be accepted as a miracle. It has to be something that cannot be explained scientifically or medically. All right. I know of some that's taken just a few months. Others might take a year. Mm-hmm. All right. One more on our list. Yes. Venerable Pierre Toussaint. Okay. And I've known about him many years. I used to visit St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York, and he's buried in the crypt under the high altar. Huh. He's the only layperson buried in the crypt. And, uh, you know, there's various archbishops of, of uh, New York. Mm-hmm. Archbishop Sheen used to be buried there. Mm-hmm. So when I would go down there and pray at those tombs, there was Venerable Pierre Toussaint. So he's earlier than the other ones that we've looked at. He was born in 1766, so he's 18th century. And he was born in what is now Haiti. His mother was a slave, and so therefore he was as well. They were the property, so to speak, of a family, the Berard family. And they were evidently pretty humane in their treatment of slaves. They educated Pierre with their own children. They taught him to read and to write. They were French, and um, when the, I guess when it's when things started to get unstable in Haiti, actually Haiti and Dominican Republic, I think at that time were probably one. It was the whole island. The Berard family decided to to move to New York City, and they took Pierre and his sister uh, Rosalie with them. This Mister Berard died, and Pierre Toussaint became the main breadwinner for the for the family. He had been apprenticed to a hairdresser. A hairdresser in New York who, you know, had as as his customers a lot of the wealthy women of the city. So he learned and became a very good hairdresser and he was able to make money to support the the widow uh, Madame Berard until she married again. And it's really interesting that he, you know, she loved him very much. He took care of her. He was still a slave, though. And it was only, I think, later when she was on her deathbed that uh, she released him and he was granted freedom. There's an early biography of Pierre Toussaint that talks about how kind he was to Madame Berard. And that biography, interestingly, was written by Mrs. Philip Schuyler, who was the mother-in-law of Alexander Hamilton. Remember, he came from right. the Caribbean. Okay. So it's, it's really interesting. So he was about 45 years old when he was freed. He also paid for his sister Rosalie's freedom. And then he also paid for the freedom of a woman named Juliet, who he fell in love with, and they got married. So he, he was able to pay because of the money he was making as a hairdresser. They also took care of his niece, who was an orphan, and raised her as their own. He was a hero for the immigrant Haitian community in New York. He and his wife provided lodging, helped all of these immigrants from Haiti, uh, helped getting them jobs. He raised money for the first Catholic school for free black children in New York and for the church that would become the old St. Patrick's Cathedral, which still stands today. 
his was a life of total generosity. He um, was a man who was deeply Catholic. He went to Mass every day for more than 60 years. He was a parishioner at the first uh, parish in New York, St. Peter's Parish, which is not far from where the World Trade Center was. Mm. And he would go there every day, go to Mass. And because he was black, uh, he had to walk everywhere. He wasn't allowed to ride in streetcars or carriages. He was just a model layman. He was an outcast because, not only because of his race, but because of his Catholic faith. So he was benefactor to various religious communities. He helped in paying for the construction of various Catholic churches in New York. He was very attentive to people who were sick and suffering. He cared for people when there were epidemics that hit the city. So there were just, he was just a man filled with charity. He deeply loved his wife. She died two years before he died and kind of was lonely, of course, after that. But he had such faith. He was able to say to people, God is still with me. When people would say to him, if he asked him if he needed anything, he'd say, I don't need anything on earth. So there's a lot of documents about him. And a cause for his canonization was opened by Cardinal Cook quite a while back. His remains were moved, as I said, they had been in, I forget where they were, but they were moved to the new St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City, the only layman to be buried there. He was declared venerable by Pope St. John Paul II in 1996. All right. Well, you keep mentioning all these different cathedrals. How many different cathedrals do you think you've been to? been to a lot. I have not, I've never counted them up. I used to uh, be able to visit New York when I was in, lived in Pennsylvania. I loved to go to New York City. And so I was many, t- every time I went there, I think I visited St. Patrick's Cathedral. Uh-huh. And also many times I visited the old St. Patrick's Cathedral. And uh, the reason was the third bishop of New York was John Dubois, and he was the founder of Mount St. Mary's okay. in Emmitsburg. And because I was rector at Mount St. Mary's and I learned a lot about Father Dubois, a French immigrant, he came to the United States at the time of the French Revolution when so many kill- priests were getting killed. Hmm. He loved the Mount. He built the college and seminary and then surprisingly was named a bishop. And his English was never very good. He had a heavy French accent. So when he was named the third bishop of New York, he wasn't really well accepted, especially by the Irish there. Okay. You know, they weren't real thrilled to have a French bishop. So it was kind of tough for him. And the story goes, uh, he's buried at the old St. Patrick's Cathedral. So I went down to pray at his tomb once, and it's like in this dingy cellar under really the steps of the old cathedral. And I asked, well, why is he like not under, not under the altar? He's under the steps as you enter. And the story goes that he said that Bishop Dubois, before he died, wanted to be buried there, saying that they walked all over him when he lived. They can walk over him when he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a great line. Yeah. And then he was followed by John Hughes, who 
that's when New York became an archdiocese. So the okay. first archbishop of New York was Archbishop John Hughes. They call him Dagger John. He was tough. Mm -hmm. He fought against all these anti-Catholic bigots. And when they tried to uh, burn down some of the Catholic churches like they had in Philadelphia, he kind of threatened that they would respond. And he said if they tried... New York would become a second Moscow. Well, the city of Moscow had burned down, mm. and like he was kind of threatening if they do anything <laughs> to the Catholic churches. But he was the one responsible for building the new St. Patrick's Cathedral. But okay. he also came from Mount St. Mary's. Archbishop John Hughes. As a matter of fact, he was a gardener there. He was from Chambersburg. Huh. He was an Irish immigrant. He was a, grew up in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, not too far from the Mount. And he would go there and take care and listen to the classes and learn Latin by listening outside the window. Really? And went on to become the first Archbishop of New York. And another Bishop of New York from Mount St. Mary's was John Cardinal McCloskey, who was the first U.S. Cardinal, first American Cardinal. Okay. He also came to... Uh, you know, began at the Mount. So anyhow, I'm going yeah. off in Catholic church history. Hope you don't mind. <laughs> That's great. All right. Well, again, these are six different African-American people who have their cause for canonization is open. If you do a search for it online, you can pull up these six and different articles on them as well. And, and it's great to research them. And it's good to hear their, a little bit of their stories here today. Uh, I know recently you celebrated the White Mass which is a special mass for healthcare workers. Any highlights from your homily at that? Yeah, every year I do the annual white mass for, the, we have Catholic medical guilds both in Fort Wayne and South Bend. Mm -hmm. It's called the white mass because of the white coats that doctors wear. And so our Catholic medical guilds you know, on both sides of the diocese sponsor the, the white mass. So this year on August October 27th in the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception in Fort Wayne, I celebrated the White Mass, and it's always good for me to be there with all the doctors, nurses, other healthcare workers, and to really thank them for their selfless service to uh, the sick and the dying. And this year it had special meaning, and I really wanted to thank them for how they've been serving people during this pandemic, their generosity and commitment, even at risk to their own health. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure they've had many, many exhausting days because of COVID pandemic and at the risk to their own health. So uh, I talked about that in my homily, thank them for their commitment and how they see their work as truly a vocation. And I talked about how for us as Catholics, that um, we definitely see the medical profession as a vocation, that they help to really extend the healing of Jesus to those who are sick and that through their profession they can witness to their faith, especially by recognizing and promoting the dignity of their parents, of their patients, their loving care of their patients. As Catholic physicians, especially Catholic healthcare workers, the importance of recognizing that every human life is sacred from the moment of conception to natural death. So our Catholic doctors and healthcare workers, parts of the Catholic Medical Guild, are, of course, very pro-life and reject the evils of abortion and euthanasia. And even when it comes to some of the new technologies that have arisen that afford new means of procreation, they recognize, as the church teaches, that what is technically possible is not 
for that very reason, morally admissible. Mm-hmm. Not everything that can be done should be done. Right. So they are to place their medical and scientific knowledge at the service of the well-being of, of, of persons insisting on the sacredness of human life at every stage, every condition. So my homily, I thank them and encourage them as witnesses in our society of the moral truths of our faith. I also mentioned about serving the poor, people who are uninsured, people who can't afford health care, and yet it's a right that they have as human persons to receive. So I thank them for, for serving the poor who aren't able to always pay for their, for their health care. Um, so that's basically was what I talked about. I also wanted to, I, I talked about love, that that is the highest standard of care. We say in our ethical and religious directives for ha- Catholic health care, we bishops say that Christian love is the animating principle of health care. And I think that's really important. I also mentioned how the church often points to the parable of the Good Samaritan as a paradigm for healthcare professionals, that they take time to stop and care for the wounded person left for dead on the side of the road. And why did the Samaritan do that? He did it out of charity. He did it out of love. And they are like good Samaritans, or they're called to be like good Samaritans. And when they love these neighbors, when they love those who are sick and suffering, They are really loving God. They're serving Christ who said, I was sick and you cared for me, you know, in the parable of the last judgment. So I reminded them that they're serving Christ in every patient. And when they care for the weak, the ill and the dying, they're really giving praise and glory to God. They refrain from doing anything evil, things like I mentioned like abortion or direct sterilization or assisted suicide or sex reassignment because they're concerned about the true welfare, the health and life of the patient, what is not just medically sound but also morally sound. And they're not only to not harm their patients but promote and protect their well-being, Mm -hmm. alleviate their pain, and assist them in their physical, emotional, and spiritual needs. So that was basically the White Mass this year. All right. Well, just a reminder, if you have any questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop, or you can text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we have some of your questions on topics like burning altars and communion services, guardian angels, and more coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. Brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. When you're worried about your health, you go see a doctor. Worried about finances? Talk to the helpful folks at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. You already share our values. Why not share in our savings? Notre Dame FCU. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, and I will be asking Bishop questions that you have submitted for him to respond to, like our first listener who said, it was disturbing to hear of the New Orleans priest who defiled the altar at his parish. The bishop had the altar burned. 
Do you know anything about this process? Is it somewhere in church law that altars can or should be burned in certain circumstances? Yes. Um, the burning was appropriate. An altar or anything that's been blessed or consecrated that is defiled can be uh, burned or buried. Okay. Uh, those are the two. When you have something blessed, you should dispose of them by by burning or by burying. And I think um, because of what happened on that altar in New Orleans, the archbishop decided that the altar should be burned. Mm -hmm. And I think that was very appropriate. I suppose a wooden altar you could burn, but something that would be like a marble, I would imagine that would have to be buried. Right. Okay. I guess another thing, the bishop could remove the consecration that took place or the blessing. And it could be then dismantled and used for other things, perhaps. Hmm. But I wouldn't, with what happened on it, I would never use it as an altar again. Right. Yeah. All right. Someone asked, can communion services be offered these COVID times? It seems to be a great alternative for prisoners who aren't comfortable going to Mass yet. Well, I think it's an interesting question because what would be the difference if people are gathering Maybe it would be like I know a few places where after Mass, uh, pr there might be some people who feel uncomfortable going to Mass or maybe they're high risk, but they really want to still receive communion. Mm -hmm. And I know of some places where after Mass, a priest has had a very short communion service with distribution of Holy Communion to those people. But you'd still have to do the precautions of keeping a safe distance sure. and wearing masks. And maybe that would be a reason because, you know, maybe they're uncomfortable being together for a whole hour for Mass mm -hmm. and feel it's more dangerous. I'm not generally a fan of communion services. I mean, I think it should be extraordinary circumstances where mass is not possible. So mm -hmm. communion services should not be done on a regular basis. I think in this situation, because of the pandemic, it's kind of a uh, extraordinary situation mm -hmm. where it can be done in those specific circumstances. Can you explain what the difference between a mass and a communion service would be? Right. Well, the mass is really the holy sacrifice it's the um, offering of the eucharistic sacrifice and holy communion is part of that mm -hmm. obviously it comes near the end so the mass it, the, the celebration of the eucharist is primary a communion service is not the celebration of the eucharist because it's the eucharist that has already been consecrated at a private prior mass Oftentimes, a communion service will be just a liturgy of the word with distribution of Holy Communion. Mm -hmm. But we have to avoid people thinking that somehow they're equal. Not at all. Okay. Um, you know, the act of worship of, this, of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass is central and most important. Uh, in no way is a communion service equivalent to the offering of Mass. When lay people extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion take communion to the sake of the homebound, would that be considered a communion service? Because yes, it doesn't I mean, have the it's consecration, a abbreviated it's, one. Mm -hmm. um, usually it's, it's shorter than... It, so that's really the distribution of Holy Communion outside of Mass. Mm -hmm. 
and that is allowed, especially for the sick and the homebound, or in the case of the dying, viaticum. So it's very abbreviated. Sometimes there will be a reading. Uh, usually there should be mm-hmm. a reading from Scripture, praying the Our Father together, okay. uh, and then the actual distribution of Holy Communion and a blessing. That's the service for Holy Communion outside of Mass. You can call that, I suppose, a communion service, a brief one. And that's resumed in the diocese, or it's available, optional? Well, it's been, I mean, the distribution of Holy Communion to the sick and the dying has has never been suspended. Oh, okay. Yeah. Even with the coronavirus, they didn't stop that? Right. Okay. And then... I guess just one more follow-up question. If somebody is thinking, you know, I, I'm not comfortable going with Mass, but wish I could still receive Eucharist, maybe they could have somebody bring it to their home, and then it would be less contact with people or less yeah, risk? Yeah, I mean, especially if someone is sick or yeah. vulnerable. Uh-huh. Yeah, they can ask uh, the priest. Um, that is, yeah, that's certainly a possibility. I do know priests who are, I mean, all the pro- proper precautions need to be taken. Mm-hmm. Because you never know if a priest is asymptomatic or something. So if someone is in a vulnerable condition and they would like to receive the Eucharist, um, you know, I think those proper precautions should be taken. And our priests are taking those precautions. I mean, the last thing a priest wants to do is be a conduit of of COVID. Yeah. All right. Our next question, what happens to your guardian angel after you die? Well, the guardian angels continue to exist. Uh The angels don't disappear from existence. So perhaps they are assigned by God to be guardian angels of others, I would guess. But that's kind of a mystery. We don't know a whole lot about the life of the angels. We can only uh, speculate a bit, but uh, they certainly continue to exist. And I think God would continue to give them that task of watching over, guarding, and protecting human beings. Would we have any need for them after death? I never heard that question as far as in purgatory. That would be an interesting question. Um, in heaven, no? Is that in what heaven, you're no. Okay, I mean, we would maybe. be all in part of the communion right. of eternal blessedness in heaven with uh-huh. the angels and the saints. Okay. Another listener asked, if you choose to be cremated, do a majority of your ashes have to be interred? Interred. Interred. Buried. Okay. Yeah. Not only a majority, all your ashes need to be interred. Okay. Um, You know, you can't, you shouldn't be separating ashes and keeping some and burying the rest. No, that's not being respectful to the remains, the human remains, the human ashes in the cases of cremation should always be buried. Is there any other options as far as, uh, you know, obviously we wouldn't want to have it sitting on the mantle. Right, that's but not. But would, would there be other holy places that you could have ashes besides burial? Like a, a crypt um, kind of a thing? or Well, they can be buried or put in, you know, those urns mm-hmm. that are put in a cemetery. What do you call it? A columbarium? Uh, we have them at our Catholic cemeteries. I think that's what it's called, where okay. they have, where they're interred, but not in the ground, okay. but in a in a building, a place of reverence. And Pla- yeah, respect. exactly. I think they call it a columbarium. Okay, is that correct? That I should know. Good that. Good trivia question. Yeah. 
All right. Finally, we have a question. We recently celebrated the feast of Pope St. John Paul II. Do you have a favorite quote from him? There are hundreds of great, great quotes right. from John Paul II, and it's really hard for me to select one. I can think of once where he said, we are not the sum of our weaknesses and failures. We are the sum of the Father's love for us mm-hmm. and our real capacity to become the image of his Son. That is such a powerful message for all of us, for young people and particular, where we focus so much on our weaknesses, our sins, our failures, and he reminds us that that we're not the sum of those things. We're the sum of the Father's love for us and our real capacity, real capacity to become the image of his Son, which is really the capacity to become saints, which is only possible by the grace of God and our, our cooperation with that grace. So that's just one quote, but there are so many quotes um, where he emphasizes how what really matters in life is that we're loved by God, that we're loved by Christ, and that we love him in return. Everything else is secondary Mm -hmm. to that. Yeah. I recently, we were asked to give our favorite quote for his feast day for the radio station, and I just did a search for Pope John Paul II quotes and looked through every like it was like the second one. I was like, oh, that's my favorite, and then I scrolled out a little bit more. No, 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 that was my favorite. Yeah. Oh, I've never heard that one before. That's really good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, if somebody wants some little short one-liners of just powerful inspiration, just yeah. do a search for that in Mother Teresa, Saint yeah. Teresa of Calcutta quotes. Just yeah. well, there, there's something about uh, saints who are able to say things very concisely that are very powerful. Yeah. I always admire that. Well, I remember once uh, I heard St. John Paul in a homily talk. I think it was might have been a youth gathering, but he was talking about prayer and saying how that always needs to become first in our lives of mm-hmm. discipleship. He said our intimate dialogue with, with Christ as our friend and how from that being deeply immersed in that relationship with Christ, friendship with him, the contemplation of God's mystery. Then we go forth as disciples. And he said, one way to do that, he said, make the Eucharist the heart of your day, he Hmm. said. Well, I heard him say that in his homily, and that's exactly what he said to me one-on-one back in 1980 when I served Mass for him, and it was the first time I met him in person. And I was in the sacristy. There were just four of us seminarians, and it was before this big Mass for the Feast of Corpus Christi. And I'll never forget, he said to me, I don't remember the first part of it, but it had something to do with prayer. And then he said, make the Eucharist the heart of your day, every day. Hmm. I thought, wow. And I always remembered that and tried to, to do that. And then I heard him say that in some big homily. Years later, I said, wow, he said that to me. Yeah. So that's another quote. He was practicing. Yes, that was <laughs> that's another. But I mean, that's had a d- deep impact yeah. on me. I was just a young seminarian at the time. And to have the Pope like address me and, and, and give that advice. Right. Um, you know, And I'd, I'll often say that to uh, young people, too, speak about making the Eucharist the, the center of their life. 
but in the case of a seminarian the or priest, the heart of our day every day. Mm. Well, we don't have time today, but maybe someday you can impact that a little bit. What does that look like to actually live that? It'd be uh, great to to be challenged in that a little bit more. Another right. thing he said, I want to say quick, yeah. you know, everyone knows, do not be afraid. Mm-hmm. But tied to that, he, he said, and uh, do not be satisfied with mediocrity. Right. I always remember that. Um, I'm sorry, I keep thinking of yeah. things. <laughs> yeah, uh, I know that's fun. But, you know, strive for greatness mm-hmm. and greatness according to the criteria of the gospel, not according to the criteria of the world. Right. All right. Well, just look up some quotes from Pope John Paul II if you need a little inspiration. There's so many good ones. And if you have any questions, you can send us a text using the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And before we go, could we get your Episcopal blessing? Yes. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. To hear the first half of Bishop and Kyle's conversation about African Americans who are candidates for canonization, check out the November 4th, 2020 episode. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit, member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives by providing products and services to save them money. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it away to our members' favorite charities. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.